There are some things that are so basic to our Christian life that sometimes we think we may not even need to talk about them or address them or think about them. Things like studying our Bible or meditating or using God's Spirit to overcome or prayer. But even the fundamentals need to be learned and reviewed, and we need to be reminded from time to time, don't we? So I'd like to talk about one of them today, and that is prayer. But not just prayer from a general perspective, but a particular aspect of prayer, and we'll see that as we go along. Let's turn over to James chapter 5 and verse 13. To start off, James chapter 5 and verse 13. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, James chapter 5. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. Pray for one another, that you may be healed. We read this, we think about this in terms of anointing for the sick, And certainly there are instructions uh, to be anointed. Call the elders of the church and ask for anointing and uh, prayer. But even in a broader sense, what does James say? He says, pray for one another. If you'd like a title today, that's my title. Pray for one another. We'll talk about that and then the sermon will be asking a couple of questions. One is, who should we pray for? And secondly is, why is praying for others so important? Who should we pray for? And why does it even matter? Now, we can fall into the trap, of certainly, of thinking, well, that's a nice thing to do. You know, it's, it's what sweet old grandmothers do. You know, they pray for uh, other people. Uh, and maybe little messages on social media about praying for other people. And, and isn't that sweet? That's really a nice thought and nice sentiment, isn't it? And you can think that that's as far as it goes, but actually we're going to see that it is far beyond just a nice sentiment. It's actually a staple to what Christians do. It's actually fundamental to this way of life. It's the way God wants us to think. And we'll we'll talk about that as we go along. First of all, let's address one issue right away. Is it the prayers themselves that have some sort of magical power? After all, let's keep reading here. It says, uh, verse... uh, Verse 16, later on in the verse, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So is it our prayers that give us power? Is there something special when we 
you know, connect with cosmic forces of the universe and suddenly we are able to affect through positive thinking uh, change in other people and other situations? Of course not. Of course not. Uh, but going on here, it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Was it that Elijah just, Elijah just thought really, really hard, and he was able to make it not rain for all that time? Or, certainly, was it the power of God? It was God's power that affected that. However, what he's saying is that truly when we are crying out for God, when we are close to God, when we are asking for help in prayer, and, and we need it, and it's God's will, amazing things can happen. And that's the point. And conversely, if we're not praying, if we're not close to him, we might even actually be putting up obstacles for amazing things to happen in our life. Uh, Mark chapter 4 and verse, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6 and verse 4. Let's look at that real quickly here. This is during Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 6 and verse 4. He was... He was performing miracles all through the land, especially in the, the land of northern Israel at that time and in uh, Galilee. And yet we, he went to his hometown. And look at what happened in verse 4, Mark chapter 6. But Jesus said to them in his home area, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Here he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, who was healing people from deadly diseases, who was making the wind stop on the the stormy seas, and yet he could do it says he could do no mighty work there. Wow, what, what a concept. That because of our attitudes, because of our perhaps disillusionment, maybe because of if we're jaded, uh, if we're bitter, uh, that's going to put a stumbling block and an obstacle in front of our prayers and in front of perhaps God doing amazing things in our life and in other people's lives. But if we have a deep appreciation for who God is, and we're not sort of too familiar with Him, or too casual with Him, and if we sense that we are talking with the supreme being of the entire universe, who loves us, who cares for us, who, who sees us, who understands us and our needs, and is providing for everything, Amazing things can happen. Before we go any further, let's talk about a specific word we often call praying for one another, intercessory prayer, and that English word even comes up from time to time in Scripture. What does this word mean? Well, it comes from the word intercession or intercede, which uh, comes from two uh, uh, Latin roots, I guess. Inter 
meaning between. And seed comes from a Latin verb, sedere. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'll just move right on. But that verb means to go. So literally, intercede means to go between. And we even have that word, a go-between. Someone who will try to intercede, will try to go between one person and another uh, where there may be a conflict, etc., and they will try to, excuse me, try to uh, affect some sort of reconciliation. A go-between. That's what intercede literally means. Well, the idea here of intercessory prayer is that when we pray for someone, we are going before our Father. We are interceding for them. Now, does this mean that our Father is ready to, you know, pounce on them? Our Father is, is really slow to bless them and, and wanting to curse them? Please don't misunderstand it as we go through. I hope that doesn't come across at all. But as human beings, we have an opportunity to intercede for one another and go to our Father in, in, on behalf of each other. And what, that's what the whole concept is all about. So let's look at some examples of intercessory prayer as we think of and ask the question, who should we pray for? James also already answered the question, we should pray for one another, but let's break it down a little bit. Number one, we should pray for others in the church. We should pray for others in the church. Number one. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, we already saw in, in James 3 that we pray for one another when we're sick. Um, but here in Ephesians, Paul makes another statement here. First of all, he's talking about putting on the armor of God and um, how we are able to stand in trials and in, in struggles by doing that. But then he closes with some interesting thoughts. He says, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So Paul says, as we put on the armor of God, and as we are thinking about struggling through our own difficulties, we need to be praying for all of the saints as well. You know, we receive prayer requests uh, sometimes, from time to time, um, about, uh, about healings, about different situations. We had one about the brethren in Myanmar not long ago uh, who were caught up in a, in a civil war. Uh, just a few days ago, Mr. Rob Tyler uh, was able to let us know that things are, are, are still the same, but God is taking care of our brethren there, which is very, very encouraging. Um, but uh, I just, just saw recently a note from him about our uh, elder, our pastor there, Mr. Thomas Teal Ho, who has what they think is dengue fever. And he's right now on oxygen and, and really needing, needing help. He's a little bit up in, in years. And so he's someone that we, we can pray for and need to pray for. We also have heard recently about Mr. Ephraim Abak, uh, our, one of our pastors, senior pastors in Kenya who is in the hospital, was in the hospital at least, I think, uh, recently, um, with pneumonia. So someone we can pray for. We, we hear uh, prayer requests like this. 
Uh, Mr. Weston recently mentioned uh, Mr. Lottie Ferreira and his family wanting to come here for camp out of South Africa, but unfortunately, uh, with some resurgence of the virus there, uh, the borders are closed coming into the U.S. And so it doesn't look like he's going to be able to make it. We also have uh, campers who want to come down from Canada into the U.S., and, and it doesn't look like that, that will happen either. These are things we can, we can pray about and uh, we, we should pray about. But here's the question. When you hear these things, <clears throat> it's so easy to just sort of get them all jumbled in your mind, isn't it? And you think, oh, I'm definitely going to pray about that one. I really am going, next time I pray, uh, tonight, tomorrow morning, I'm going to pray for Mr. Abak, or I'm going to pray for Mr. Thomas Ho. And then we forget. And we don't remember. And then we hear another prayer, prayer request. We, oh, I'm going to pray for that one. <laughs> I'm going to pray about that situation. And we forget. That's why it's so helpful that even keeping a little notebook, Mr. Ames has talked to us about this in the past, or in these days, maybe on your cell phone, keeping a list and writing it down or typing it in right away so we even imprint those names and imprint those situations in our, in our minds. And then we have a jog to, rem, to remind ourselves when we are praying. We have it close at hand when we're praying at night or in the morning. So we can be thinking about these things. So we should pray for our brethren. Who else should we pray for? Number two, we should pray for those out in the world. We should pray for those out in the world. Now this can be confusing because there are a couple of scriptures that seem to contradict that. So for example, Jeremiah 7:16. I'll just read it. God told Jeremiah, Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. So should we not pray for the world because of that? John 17, 9, Jesus said, I pray for them, his disciples. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the question comes up, should we pray for the world? Well, we have to kind of understand that God gave Jeremiah specific instructions, didn't he? He gave him a specific instruction in that case to not pray for those people in that context. And there are other verses, other scriptures, as we're going to come to here in a moment, that really help to round out the context, that, that that seems to be something he was addressing with Jeremiah that specific time. But it's very... It seems to be wrong to develop a whole thinking from that one scripture that doesn't take, excuse me, sorry, that's becoming a habit, isn't it? That doesn't take into account other scriptures in the Bible. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. For example, it really doesn't take that long to figure out that we are not told in the Bible to never pray for anyone in the world. For example, can you think of what Jesus said when he was on the stake, when he was about to die, and he was looking at the, the crowds and the people who were hurling insults at him and taunting him, and what did he say? 
What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Was he praying for the world? Was he interceding for people who were in a really rebellious and horrible attitude? Absolutely. So we shouldn't misunderstand Jeremiah's, that verse in Jeremiah, and take it to a wrong conclusion. In fact, let's, we're right here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19, and let's keep reading because in verse 19, after he talks about praying for all the saints, he says, and for me. Paul says, pray for me. Why? That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now let's think this through. We are told to pray for the work, and we pray for the work. Here's an example of that. Paul asked the brethren to pray for the work. Mr. Sir, Mr. Smith recently gave a, a sermon where he discussed praying for the work. But let me ask you a question. What does praying for the work mean? In this, in this example, what does praying that Paul would be given utterance to preach the gospel? Well, what's the response of him preaching the gospel supposed to be? Is it not that individuals who are hearing that message would repent, would change, would soften, would be different? Isn't the whole point of praying for the telecast, praying for the magazine, praying for the work and all the different aspects of it. Isn't the point so that the world, those in the world, some would hear and respond. Some would change their lives. And even those who don't, we know that for some it will just be a witness. But isn't God planting the seeds for later on in the second second resurrection? Sorry that those seeds would sprout and at that time their minds would be changed and they would repent. So when we're praying for the work, we're, we're praying that people would respond. People in the world. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20. We find a passage here, a story, a account of uh, certainly you know the story how uh, the Eternal was going down to Sodom to deal with the situation. And on the way, uh, he and the angels met with Abraham. And then in uh, verse 20, it says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom, Genesis, Genesis 18, And Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city, would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. You know, it's a little breathtaking when you, when you think about what Abraham was saying to the eternal. 
when he was really sort of negotiating with them. He said, far be it for you to do this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham was saying to the eternal, this is, this is not, you know, what, this is, this is not what you do. Now, was he having intercession for the people of Sodom? Particularly for the righteous of Sodom, but really for, for the whole city. He was. Now, was he praying? He was talking to God. Are not our prayers talking to God? So, in effect, Abraham was, was interceding, had intercessory prayer in that sense to God. He was asking for him to relent, to not destroy the city. On behalf of the righteous is one example. Let's turn to another example, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 10. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 10. The children of Israel had built the golden calf, had sinned against God, were rebelling right after they had just entered this covenant. And uh, look, look what happened. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside it. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. In verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now sometimes we can think, okay, what was God really doing here? What was the eternal doing? Was he really going to destroy Israel? Was he just testing Moses? We don't really know, do we? But one way or the other, that's what he said. But look at what Moses said. Verse 11, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Did Moses intercede for his brethren? Did Moses intercede for his sinning brethren? Absolutely. Should we intercede for our people, for this world? Should we pray for the world? Should we pray that people repent? Should we pray that people are changed through the work? Absolutely. Now, let's turn over to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. Because Daniel gives an interesting example of when we are praying for our people, we don't hold ourselves totally above and beyond the possibility of sinning ourselves, do we? Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. He says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. 
and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And you can read down the whole list, and he uses those pronouns over and over and over again. We have sinned. We have not been faithful. Now, was Daniel putting himself exactly in the same boat as those who are outright rebelling against God? Of course not. But he was acknowledging that he sinned too. And as we pray for the world, we pray that people would respond, our neighbors, our friends. We understand we need help too, don't we? We need mercy too. And that's why we're praying for them. Why should we pray for the world? Because they are made in God's image just like us. So we should pray for the church. We should pray for the world. Number three, who else should we pray for? We should pray for our enemies and put in parentheses or even those who just annoy us. Pray for your enemies and for those who annoy you. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. So who do we pray for? Who's on your prayer list? Well, hopefully Mr. Abach and hopefully Mr. Thomas Steele Ho, but maybe a few other people as well. Now, maybe that we don't have enemies in this life, you know, uh, like David did and others in times past. Hopefully we don't have mortal enemies. But do we have anyone who we might get annoyed with or they get annoyed with us or we have difficulty getting along with or a conflict with? Should they be on our prayer list? Why did he say that? Why did Jesus say that? Well, going on, notice verse 45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He said, if you want to be my son or daughter, this is the way I think. I'm letting you know how I work. And here is what I do, God says, Jesus is saying about the Father, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the just. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? If we only pray for those who we're best friends with, Jesus is saying, are you really beginning to think like God? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Or let's put in the IRS agents in our age. You know, that puts it in perspective. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God says if if we want to be in his family, we need to start thinking like him. And he says he brings the, the sun and the rain on the wicked just like the just. So we need to pray for our enemies. 
Sometimes we can get on each other's nerves, and I'm not going to mention any names, don't worry. But sometimes we can step on each other's toes, can't we? And sometimes it makes our relationships difficult. As adults, sometimes we can forget what it's like to be a young person and how hard it it is in uh, growing up. Other kids can be pretty cruel sometimes. It can be kind of tough. You know, there have always been bullies. There have always been those who would shun or ignore others as kids or put them down. But unfortunately, these, these situations are amplified today by social media, and you can see it in the news. You can read books about it, about how, how very, very difficult it is for some young people. You know, it's no longer just on the playground. It's on the Internet. And it's real and it's a shame. And it's difficult. And it hurts those who are affected by it. If you are a young person, you know, you'll have to learn to deal with it without being devastated by it. Because that is our world. But I'll tell you a secret weapon you have against the bullies and the cruel people. No, it's not jujitsu. It's not karate. It's prayer. It's prayer. Yes, you should stand up for yourself. Uh, Yes, you don't agree with what others are doing if they're being cruel and, and not being nice. But what about praying for them? What about taking it to our Father, even as a young person? What about talking to God about what's happening? Yes, talking to your parents as well and getting their advice. But what about talking to God? That's exactly what Jesus said. Pray for your enemies or even those who are annoying. I'm putting that other part in it. Now, how should we pray for our enemies or those who annoy us? Should we pray that God would crush their skulls and break their teeth? Actually, let's turn over to Psalm 41. David sort of did that sometimes. Have you noticed that? Psalm 41 and verse 7, because this question comes up, should I, can I pray like David? You know, (laughs) does that work? Well, let's look at this a minute. Yeah, here's an example. Psalm 41 and verse 7, David said, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt and evil disease. They say clings to him, and now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up. Why? Why should you raise me up, David said, so that I can repay them? Is that what we should do? When we pray for our enemies, is that what Jesus meant? God, please help me so that I can get back and get even. No. We have to understand that that David did not have the total picture. Did he have God's spirit? Yes. But was he a bloody man? Yes who was not allowed to build the temple? Yes. 
David was a violent man. He, he was living in a violent world, and he was not allowed to build a temple. There, there, was, there was something that was missing, and yet he's going to be in the kingdom. We understand that. We understand that. But David did pray for his enemies in a positive way as well. Turn over to Psalm 35 and verse 11. My point is just to say, when he said, bash their teeth in, let's not do that, okay? Psalm 35 and verse 11, he said, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. David did, did pray for his enemies, but not always with the total big picture. That's the point. Let's... Look back at Numbers chapter 11. I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Here's another example of praying for, or let's say interceding to God for someone else. Because praying really is just talking to God. And so in the case of some of these examples... The eternal was here on earth, or at least was talking to some of these individuals. And so, we, these are examples of interceding for one another. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 1, you know the conflict was between Miriam and Aaron and Moses. Verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Eternal said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out, and the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And as he goes through, he talks about, look, you don't understand what you're doing. I have a, a, a special relationship with Moses, and both of you have gone too far. That's essentially what he's, uh, he's saying. This was not Moses' problem. This was your problem. But notice verse 9. So the anger of the Eternal was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the clouds departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam, Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. Now, I grew up in the church, and I have to admit, when I would hear early on in my life scriptures like this, I knew that a leper and a leopard were different. <laughs> but, you know, when you're really young, you still sort of get those mixed up, so you think, she was a leper, but maybe she had spots like a leopard. I don't know. It, but no, just to clarify that, a leper was a skin disease, a horrible, incurable skin disease. A leopard is a carnivorous, very large animal. Okay, so those are two to totally different things. So verse 11. So Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly in which we have sinned. Please do not let her as, be one, as one who is dead, 
whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Aaron said to Moses, do something. Now, if you were Moses, what would you say in response? Aaron, what can I possibly do? I'm powerless here. I can't stop this. All I can do is pray. And that's what he did. So Moses, verse 13, cried out to the Lord saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. And God healed her. Now remember just a moment ago, Miriam was really in Moses' face, wasn't she? About who do you think you are? You are arrogant, you are blah, 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 you are this, you are that. And yet, Moses prayed for her. Moses prayed for her. She wasn't an enemy, but she was kind of being annoying. Moses didn't hold it against her. He prayed for her. He had pity on her. Brethren, we should pray for our enemies or even those who just we have conflict with. Who else? Who else? Number four, we should pray for government leaders. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, I've read this for a number of years, but it just struck me recently this word intercessions is here. When we are praying for our government leaders, that word is in there. In other words, we are praying to God on behalf of them. What should that say to us about how we think about our government leaders? You know, we are in a super high-intensity time in our country, aren't we? In terms of how people think about politics, how people are antagonistic against each other about politics, and against that backdrop... Paul says we, as God's people, should intercede for our government leaders. Does it mean we agree with all their policies? Does it mean we agree with all of how they live? No, but we should intercede. What does that mean? What, what does that really think about that? That means we are praying to God. We're talking to God about fill in the blank. Which government leader do you want to talk to God about? And again, not to say, Lord, break their teeth. That's not the way that we should pray for them. Should we pray that God would would guide their decisions? Should we pray that God would, would help them in their life? Should we pray that God would give them wisdom if they're making mistakes? Should we pray that God would be merciful to them? 
Now, does this mean that they're going to be converted and respond and be a part of the church in this age? Probably not. Does this mean that sometimes they may have policies that are totally against everything we believe? It, it could be. But, you know, they are in that position. Who was the Roman emperor when Paul was probably writing this? Nero. You could not come up with a more weird, violent example of a government leader than Nero. And yet he said, intercede for kings and all who are in authority. And you know, whoever is in that government position, eventually in the second resurrection, is God going to work with them? Are they made in his image? Is he planting the seeds, perhaps even now, that are going to sprout at that time? And they're, God willing, going to be in his family? Can we start praying for them now? just like we should pray for one another. I think we've figured it out now. One another really means everyone. We don't even have to go there, but remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who really is our neighbor? Who really do we need to pray for? Ultimately, it's everyone. Now, we don't have time to pray for every you know, 7.5 billion person by name, but... We should really be willing to pray for just about anyone. Let's talk about why we pray for others. We've talked about who. Now let's talk about why. Uh, we will just stay here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the first point. Number one, why we should pray for others. Number one, when we pray for others, we are walking in the footsteps of Christ. When we pray for others, we're walking in the footsteps of Christ. Let's read here, uh, starting up from where we left off. He said, For kings and all who are in authority, verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the big picture. And that's why we pray. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Why do we pray for each other? Why do we pray for our enemies? Why do we pray for high-ranking officials? Because we are being trained for the priesthood. We are being trained for the priesthood. Well, let's talk a little bit about Christ's role as listed here. He's the mediator for all mankind between God and man. He is the one who intercedes. He fills that function. He's the one who sacrificed his life for us and for every human being. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says, He poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. By his sacrifice, he made intercession for everyone. He paid the price for sin, didn't he? Let's go to the book of Hebrews. 
He intercedes for us. He, he interceded with his sacrifice. But he continues to intercede for us as we go through our life, as we need it, as we sin and repent. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 23. Also, there were many priests. He's talking about the, the physical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, that is Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's sacrifice paved the way, and he continues to be in that role as mediator between man and God. We pray in his name. We approach the Father in his name. We can't approach this on our own, can we? Through him, everything we do, through his power and because of his help and his grace. Notice in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. And why do we need an intercessor? Because we also have an accuser. We have an accuser. Revelation 12 verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan the devil is our accuser, and he's there 24-7 accusing human beings before God. Now, I'm not saying that God believes all of his accusations. We're not, of course, saying that. But he is doing it nonstop. When we fall short, he's there to tell God, See, I knew it. I knew they wouldn't really obey you. I knew they wouldn't be faithful to you. I knew they couldn't follow you in the long term. He's always accusing. And yet Jesus Christ is there to defend us. To say to the Father, to intercede to the Father, have mercy on them. They're trying. They made a mistake. I know what it's like. I've been there. I was human. I was flesh. Please forgive them. Now, why does he do that? Because that's what the high priest does. Under the old system, that's what the high priest did. He would be the one who would intercede, offer the offering on behalf of the person, and pray to God on their behalf. Brethren, why does Paul say that we should make intercession for others? Because we're training to be kings and priests as well. We'll never be the mediator. We'll never be the high priest. That's Christ's position. But in the millennium, when we are working with people, will we have an opportunity to talk to God about certain individuals and, and talk about how they're growing and how... They're overcoming, and yes, they made a mistake, but please forgive them. They need help. They're, they're going to make it. Please be patient with them. 
And again, not making it sound like the Father is quick to condemn because we know He's patient and loving and and forgiving. But Jesus Christ has been through physical life and we are going through physical life. So we will understand those people and be able to talk to the Father because of personal experience and intercede for them. You know, sometimes we can feel like we don't have a significant part in the work. Maybe maybe we don't have a significant part in the congregation. Maybe we have health problems. Maybe we're elderly. Maybe we can't stand for a long period of time. Maybe we don't have the strength to, you know, set up speakers or chairs or that sort of thing. Maybe we can't see so well. Maybe we can't make it to services all the time. We have brethren who are in that position. But can you pray for others? Can you do what your job is going to be in the kingdom of God? Maybe you know someone who is having grievous personal issues. Maybe you know someone who is under attack. You know that Satan is attacking that person. Maybe you have a unique opportunity to go to our Father and intercede for them and pray for them. Father, please help them. Or maybe maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you're a mother with small children, and your time and your mental space is very, very limited. And you might be thinking, there's no way that I can add one more thing to my list of things to do. But maybe you can just write down a few names of people that you can pray for, and when you have about 10 seconds of time, maybe you're feeding your baby, maybe you're rocking your baby to sleep, and you pull up a couple of names on your phone, and you just briefly, quickly pray for them. They're going through a rough time. I'm going to pray for them. Father, help them. Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Let's turn over there. Luke 22, verse 31, because Satan is on the job non-stop. Does it matter if we pray for one another? Does it matter if we fill that role, if, if, if we start to practice that role of interceding for one another, which we're training for as a part of the spiritual priesthood? Luke chapter 22, and verse 31, notice what Jesus said to Peter Toward the end of his life, the Lord said, verse 31, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I prayed for you, Peter, specifically prayed for you, that you would be strengthened, that you would stand tall, that you would be able to fight against the wiles of the devil. Brethren, can we follow that example when we pray for one another's, when we know they're in need? What's another reason we pray for others? Number two, we pray for others because we open ourselves up to blessings. We open ourselves up to blessings. Let's turn over to Job 42. Job 42. Remember the story of Job, how he had gone through so many things. 
And finally he came out to the end and he had learned a lot. And at the very, very end, it's a fascinating conclusion to the story because it says, verse 7, So it was, Job 42, verse 7, that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Ouch. They thought this whole time, finally they had found something in Job. Job was so perfect. He was one of those people that was just absolutely perfect. So they finally felt like, finally we, we, we've nailed him. He, he's, he's taken down a little bit. And yet, the end of the story, they said, oops, that wasn't the lesson at all. And actually now, Job's going to have to pray for us. That's humbling. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. Verse 10, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his Friends, how fascinating. His friends needed Job to pray for them, but Job also needed to pray for his friends. And it seems that after he prayed for his friends, then God opened up the door to more blessings. It allowed God to bless him more. You know, praying for others does change us. When we're upset with someone and we pray for them from the heart, it changes us. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes they may not even know that we prayed for them or about them. Again, not that God would bash their teeth in. When we really pray for them, it changes us on the inside, doesn't it? And we can actually approach them later on with a totally different mentality. Maybe the, the, maybe the situation doesn't totally change, but, but we change. Even praying for others who we aren't in conflict with, that changes us as well. Have you ever noticed that after you've been praying for someone, really praying for them, maybe they're on the other side of the earth, maybe you've never met them before, they're just a name and they're just a phrase, about what they're going through. But you pray for them. And then maybe sometime down the road you meet them. And you feel like you've known them. And maybe they recovered. I can think of some people in, in my life like that. Maybe when they recovered, you feel like you were a part of their recovering. And there's a, there's a closeness there. Because you prayed for them, even though you didn't know them. Especially, even more if we do know them. I've seen that in my life. <clears throat> when we pray for others, it opens up blessings for ourselves. What else? Number three. 
When we pray for others, we keep ourselves from sinning. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20. We find here the story of how the Israelites had rejected Samuel and they wanted a king and Samuel was upset, but God said, no, it's okay, this is, this is the way it's supposed to happen. This is what, you know, I'm, I'm working something out here. It's going to be okay. And then notice what Samuel said to the children of Israel. 1 Samuel 12 and verse Verse 20, then Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Verse 21, do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Samuel saw it as sin to not pray for them. Isn't that a concept? Now, what was he talking about? I think what he's meaning is when we understand the way God thinks, when we understand the way Jesus Christ thinks as his role as the mediator, we need to learn to think like them. And if we're thinking like God, we're going to be like Him and we're going to be filling a role like Christ. And if we're not thinking like Him, and if we're inta- you know, contrary to Him, in antagonism to Him, then we're not going the same direction. Does that become sin? That's a fascinating question. It's actually fundamental and we something we need to do. Lastly, why do we need to pray for others? Number four, when we pray for others, we are strengthened in our own trials. When we pray for others, we are strengthened in our own trials. Let's turn over to John 17 and verse 6. John 17 and verse 6. This, of course, is the the final chapter of Jesus' life just before he was arrested. In these last few chapters, we read at Passover instructions to his disciples. And finally, chapter 17 is a prayer from Christ himself. And notice what he said here. Uh, John chapter 17 He's praying for. He's praying to the Father about. Um, well, let's just read it. Jesus spoke these words. Verse one lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him." Verse three, and this is eternal life that they may know you. Notice how quickly Jesus Christ got into the pronoun they. And as you go down the chapter, as you go down the dialogue, look at how many times it says they or them or the disciples. Notice he says, verse verse 9, 
Uh, oh, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. Keep going. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Think about this. He was about to die. He was about to give his life. And yet, his mind was on his disciples. Now, we often talk about this at Passover. Just how much great love Christ had for his disciples. But let's think about another angle of this he was about to go through the worst trial of his life maybe it was for him as well that he was focused on his disciples maybe it was for him for Jesus Christ who was a human being who was subject to trials who was subject to the flesh, who not that long after this was praying and, and, and was under such tremendous pressure that, that great drops of blood were coming out of his forehead. Maybe he knew that in order to pass that final test, he had to make sure he also was focused on his brothers and not just on himself. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Thinking about the next generation. Thinking about those who would come after. And we we read this. We understand it. He's talking about unity. He's talking about that they all would be one. And finally, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these, he keeps talking about these men, these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. The very last word of this Section is them. Brethren, how powerful is it when we are struggling, when we are in difficulty, when we are overwhelmed that we come up for air and we think about and we pray about others and we pray for others and we think about what they're going through and what they need. And it's actually good for us. It's good for us. If even Jesus Christ did it, it's good for us. And we need it. Sometimes our prayers, especially when we are in grievous, grievous prayers, are just help. I need help. I need help now. Please help. Why aren't you helping? How do we get through those? Maybe this 
chapter, John 17, is instructive. Let's turn to Acts chapter 12 and verse 1 as we wrap up. One more example. We're living in the end times. We're going to face some challenging times. We don't know exactly what's around every corner. But how do we face the coming years positively and with hope and confidence and courage? Just like everything else, so much of it comes down to being close to God and being instant and constant in prayer, including praying for others. There's an account in the book of Acts early on in the story of the New Testament church when Peter was put into prison. uh, James had been already killed, executed, and Peter was taken. Chapter 12 and uh, verse Uh, Verse 4, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people before Passover. Peter was therefore, verse 5, kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. What did they do after James was killed and Peter was arrested? Just think about how difficult this would have been. What did they do? They prayed. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. So he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Now, this kind of reminds you of when you have small children. Okay, put on your shoes. Okay, now now the other shoe. Okay, now put on your coat. Okay, now your hat. You know, it's really interesting thinking of this from this perspective, that the angel had to tell Peter every little thing to do. Uh, maybe he was thought he was dreaming, sort of in that fog when you first wake up out of a deep sleep. But this is what happened. So he went out and followed in verse 9 and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went out down the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Verse 11, and when Peter had come to himself, that's a great phrase, isn't it? When Peter stopped and thought, what just happened? And it began to dawn on him what just happened. He said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, verse 12, this he, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Were God's people at that time overwhelmed by this extremely difficult situation? What were they doing? They were praying. They were undoubtedly talking, fellowshipping, encouraging one another, and they were praying. For him, And he came to the door in verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. This is such a great story about Rhoda. 
And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. She left it closed, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Verse 16, so Peter kept knocking and uh, because the gate wasn't open. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. It was an incredible intervention, an incredible event that happened to the church at that time. What's the point? God delivered Peter, was it the prayers of the people that somehow, you know, unleashed a cosmic force to open the, the gates of the city and let his chains fall? No, it was, it was God's power. But the brethren were praying, and God delivered him. The point is, they were praying for one another and beseeching God on Peter's Again, we don't know what's around the corner, but one thing we can know for sure, we're going to need to pray for one another even more. I think that's safe to say, wouldn't you? We're going to need each other's prayers even more. And God is going to help us. Brethren, let's not ever think that praying for one another is just sort of a sweet idea that we can put on a Facebook meme or put on a knick-knack on a shelf. Praying for one another is actually a fundamental part of our Christian walk. Whether we're praying for those in the church, whether we're praying for the work, and we're praying for those in the world, that they would turn their lives around and have an opportunity to be in the first resurrection. Or praying for our enemies and making sure we are not an enemy to them, even to those who are close to us, because we can get annoyed with each other from time to time, doing our part, or praying for government leaders in a time when there is so much hatred and vitriol about what's happening in our government. We must pray for them. And why do we pray? Because we're walking in the footsteps of Christ, we're becoming like Him. We are opening ourselves up for blessings that otherwise we might be cutting ourselves off from. And we are making sure we're not sinning. Because according to Samuel, he felt that not praying for others was sinning. And we are even helping ourselves to be strengthened in trials. It's not a light thing. It's not a tangential thing. It's actually a fundamental part of our Christian walk. It's part of our training. It's part of how we're preparing for the kingdom, how we grow and develop, and even are being blessed now. Brethren, let's pray for one another.